Okay, so we are in uh, John 20 tonight. If you've got your Bible, you can go there. Uh, we've been walking through uh, these different stories about Jesus in the Gospels. The Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, and they are the books that are about Jesus' life and his teaching. And here's the thing about the Gospels. For as long as they have been in existence, there have been people saying that they're not true, that they cannot be trusted, that, that the writers of the Gospels uh, made up a lot of the stories or, or fabricated, at least exaggerated, the stories about Jesus for the sake of creating their own kind of movement, their own kind of religion, for the sake of being able to gain power and influence over people. Because if you can control people's beliefs, then you can control their lives. And so this has been one of the accusations that has been levied against the Gospels for a long time, that, that you can't trust them. They're just kind of power play stories, trying to, to develop some new religion to get, to get followers and those kinds of things. Here's the thing, though. I sometimes wonder if the scholars and the people who make those kind of accusations against the Gospels uh, have ever actually read them. Because if you ever take a look at the Gospels and the stories that are in there, there are so many stories within them that are counterproductive if you're trying to make up a religion to get people to follow you. There are too many stories that work against your plan if that's what you're aiming at. There are too many stories that are embarrassing or undermine your authority. So many things that just do not seem to work if your goal is to make up a religion, to invent one so that you can control people's lives. There are some, there are some kind of minor ones. We touched on this just a few weeks ago. In John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at his friend's funeral, Lazarus' funeral, and he raises him from the dead. But... We also describe this really interesting moment that goes against what most people would see or think or create if they were writing this story for themselves. And that is, if you wrote a story in which God came to earth as a human being and he showed up at a funeral knowing that he was going to raise somebody from the dead, you would write that character as someone who comes with supreme confidence, with a smile on his face, with a quick word of calming for everyone, it's okay, I'm here to take care of everything, you would never write a story in which that God breaks down weeping in the middle of a funeral. It just doesn't fit. There are minor ones like that. There are bigger ones, though, all the way throughout. For example, if your goal is to build up an authority structure where people blindly follow the leaders of your religion, you would not tell all the different stories that are told about the leaders, that is, the apostles, the early church leaders, in these Gospels. You read through the Gospels, and like every other story, one of them's looking like an idiot. That's kind of how it works. Over and over again, they're, uh, they miss Jesus' point. They miss Jesus' identity. They get in fights over which of them is going to be most important when Jesus takes over Jerusalem, which he's not even interested in doing. And so over and over again, you see these issues. You would never tell the key, uh, the story of the key central leader of the early church, Peter himself. You would never tell the story of him trying to rebuke Jesus for his plans. You would never make up a story about him denying Jesus three times on the eve of his crucifixion. That, that just does not work within the structure of what you're trying to accomplish. And you would never tell the story in John 20, the critical, foundational story of all Christianity. You would never tell it the way John tells it if you were making that story up. John 20 Verse 1 is where we're going to jump into, but first let me set the scene for you. It is early Sunday morning, two days after Jesus has been crucified. He died on a Friday, and the uh, disciples, the 11 disciples, are hiding away somewhere in Jerusalem, probably in some different parts of Jerusalem, and they are overcome with sorrow and fear. They just watched their Messiah, the guy that they pinned all of their hopes on, the guy that they left all of their lives behind to follow. They left jobs, they left friends, they left family to go and follow this guy because they believed he was the Messiah. He was going to be the one who was going to come save them all and make everything right. And they just watched him be convicted by the Jewish ruling council and then executed by the Roman rulers over the, the region, publicly executed, publicly shamed as a criminal. And their world has just fallen apart. 
They can't figure out which way is up and which way is down. All they know is that everything that they were aiming for has just vanished in front of them, and they are devastated. Meanwhile, while they're uh, sulking and hiding in fear, there's actually a group of women who are followers of Jesus who begin to make their way outside of the city walls of Jerusalem out to the tomb where Jesus is buried. They want to finish the job of preparing his body for burial. That was a big deal in Judaism, is making sure that there were proper preparation for the body. And because it was, uh, Jesus died on a Friday and the Sabbath was coming just a few hours after that, there's a good chance they didn't have the time to give him like the proper uh, burial preparation. And so they go on Sunday morning to finish the job. And that's where our story picks up. Actually, let me give you one other, one other little bit of information. One of the women, uh, one of the women who are going is a, a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Uh, her name, if you know Christianity, Bible stuff very often, is, is fairly, fairly popular. It's fairly well known. But we really don't know much about her except for just a few things. One is she's from a, a little town called Magdala, which is in Galilee near Nazareth. That's where that Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, comes from. Uh, two is that she, along with some of the other women, uh, supported Jesus' ministry financially. They would give money to it to enable him to continue preaching and teaching. And third is that before she met Jesus, she was demon-possessed. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary. And so this was her life before Jesus. And after that, she was committed to him. So she goes Sunday morning with these women to the tomb. And that's where we pick up. John chapter 20, verse 1 says this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So she goes running. As soon as she looks and she sees the stone is gone, she probably peeks in and notices that the body is gone. And so she immediately takes off running back to find Peter. And it says the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, This would be John, the writer of the gospel. He never refers to himself by his name in the gospel. He always just calls him uh, the one that Jesus loved. We don't know if that means that John was extra close to Jesus or if that just means that's kind of a a way of humility. It doesn't matter who I am, just know this, that I'm loved by Jesus. That that may be what he's doing. But he goes and she goes and she finds them to tell them uh, this terrible news that they have taken the Lord. More than likely when she says they, she's talking about the Jewish authorities suspecting that they've taken Jesus' body so that no one can tamper with it and claim that anything has happened or anything like that. So she runs and she tells him this, um, and, and then they take off running toward the tomb as well. Now, I want you to pay attention to the level of detail that John gives in these next several verses. Here's what he says, verses 3 through 8. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead." Okay, so John goes into a lot of detail. He says, we both take off running. John is, from what we know, younger than Peter, faster than Peter, so he gets to the tomb first. But Peter, as always, is more bold, quicker to rush into situations, quicker to rush into good things, quicker to rush into dumb things. He does all of those things. And in here, he rushes into the tomb, and he looks around, and what they see is so strange that it sticks vividly in John's mind. He's able to describe it in detail. Actually, the word that's used in verse 6 when it says that Peter saw the things lying there is a different word than the other words for see in here. It's a word that means to look attentively. It's a word that means to consider or to ponder. So when, when it says Peter sees this stuff, it means he's sitting there and he's going, this doesn't make sense, and he's trying to make sense of what he sees. Because if what Mary said was true, that the body was stolen, there's no reason for all the grave burial clothes to be lying there in the tomb. 
If thieves were coming in to steal it, they would not take the time or bother to unwrap it. If friends were taking in to move the body, they certainly wouldn't um, undignify it by stripping the body naked and then running it out. And if it was Jesus' enemies, they would not have taken the time to do that. And they certainly wouldn't have taken the time to do that and then fold things up nice and neat and lay them there before they left, kind of with a little mint on the pillow and all of those things, you know? And so Peter's looking at this and he's trying to make sense of what he's seen as he looks at these things. And then John says, he comes in and at the time, John says, we had not put two and two together yet. We were not making sense of the things that had been said in the scriptures and the things that Jesus had said to them over and over again. That he would be uh, that he would rise from the dead. And that may seem crazy to us because Jesus says this on multiple times. He tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be put on trial by the authorities there and they're going to execute me. They're going to crucify me. And he says, and then I will raise again. But for whatever reason, no matter how often he says it, they do not get it. it like, it's like in one ear, out the other. It goes right past him. There's one, one of my favorite instances is in Mark chapter 9, right after Jesus has this amazing experience up on the mountain, the transfiguration, and he's transformed in front of these three disciples, and then they walk down, and he tells them, hey, don't tell anybody about this until after I've risen from the dead. And they all look at each other, and they're like, I wonder what he means by raised from the dead. Okay. <laughs> Like, they have no clue. They can't put this together, which is interesting. Because a lot of people tend to think that what was happening was the disciples, some of the people who think that stuff gets made up or maybe that they just kind of blew this all out of proportion, they think that the disciples were just waiting for Jesus to be resurrected. That that's what they expected to happen. That's not what they expected to happen. When Mary sees the tomb empty, she doesn't go, he's resurrected. Her first thought is it must have been stolen. That's the only explanation. When the disciples run in, they can't make sense of what they're seeing here. The disciples did not expect it. None of the Jewish people, this is important, none of the Jewish people expected that the Messiah would be resurrected. None of them expected that the Messiah would have to be resurrected. He wasn't going to die. He wasn't going to get conquered. And so nobody's looking forward to this when it happens. It catches them all off guard. Um, So... John steps in and he sees and something in his mind begins to click as he looks at all the evidence and his mind goes back to Jesus' words and it says that he believes. We don't know specifically what, but usually when this word believe is used in John, it means like full belief, like buying into who Jesus is and following him. So John sees it and gets it. Peter, we don't know. Mary, she's not there yet. And this is what it says in verse 10. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in, uh, in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, This is odd. Usually in the Bible, when people see angels, they freak out. They don't know what to do in that moment. It's so terrifying. Mary, in this instance, angels, she peeks in. There was nobody in there a second ago. She peeks in again. Angels are there. They start talking. She just carries on a conversation with them. Okay? Uh, We don't know exactly why. My guess is because she is so, as it describes, overcome with grief that she's not even like properly thinking through things. She's not recognizing things when they happen, which is exactly what we see in the very next verse. It says in verse 14, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Now, pause. Why does Jesus ask this question? Jesus knows why she's crying, right? He's not dumb. He's Jesus. He knows exactly why she's crying. She's crying because he's dead and she can't find him. So why does he ask this? And by the way, why do the angels ask it? Because they asked the exact same question just a second ago. You know what I think? I don't think Jesus is asking a real question here. I think Jesus might be asking one of those questions that's really a statement. He's really actually making a point by the question. Actually, parents do this all the time, okay? Uh, When you're a parent, you'll find yourself doing these things all the time. Me and my wife have done this all the time. We will ask questions like, 
why did you decide to jump into your brother's bath with all of your clothes on? Right? Or why did you think you should uh, eat that french fry that you found on the corner of the garage floor? Or why did you try to cut the cat's tail with a pair of scissors? All things that have truly happened in my house, by the way. But when Amy and I, when my wife, when we ask our kids those kinds of questions, I'm not actually asking them a question in that moment. I'm making a statement. I'm telling them, please don't cut the cat's tail with a pair of scissors, right? Or I'm telling them, you should not eat french fries that you find on the floor in the garage, right? Those are, I'm, I'm making a statement. And that, I believe, is what Jesus is doing here in this moment. He's making a statement. He says, Mary... You don't see it yet, but you have no idea how out of place those tears are. See, crying is what you do at a funeral. Crying is what you do when you've lost a loved one. Crying is what you do when death has won, but none of those things are true in this moment. None of those things are happening right here in front of this tomb. And so Jesus says, why are you crying? Who do you think you're going to find in that tomb? Like, really, what what are you expecting to see inside of there? Here's what it says. Um, Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She recognizes that. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. So she knows the voice when she hears this. And she immediately, apparently, grabs onto him, latches onto his feet. Her, her whole world has been turned upside down. She thought this man who had saved her was gone, this one that she had pinned all her hopes on. And here he is in front of her, and she grabs onto him, does not want to let go. And yet Jesus says this kind of strange statement here in verse 17. He says, Do not cling to me, which is odd, but then why, since I have not yet ascended to my Father. What is he talking about there? What, what does that have to do with holding on to Jesus, and why is that a big deal to her or to him or anything else? What's going on there? We'll talk a little bit about that in just a bit. Um, but she gets this word from Jesus. She runs back into town, and she gets to share the greatest news in the history of the world, that Jesus, the one they had hoped was the Messiah, truly is. That Jesus, the one they thought was dead, is dead no longer. She gets to bring that news. But I told you at the beginning that if you were making up this story, you would never write it that way. And here's why. Because in the society, in, in first century Jewish culture and in Roman culture, um, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses particularly in like high-stress situations. Don't, uh, this, is, this is not the opinion of Drew right now, okay? Don't get mad at me. I'm just sharing what they would have said, okay? Uh, their thoughts were that women could not be counted on to be reliable to convey important information in a stressful event. They believed this so firmly that a woman's testimony was not admissible in the court of law, neither in the Jewish court of law or in the Roman court of law. So, if you are writing a story, actually, just so you know, this was such a big deal, okay, that when uh, unbelievers wanted to try to attack the Christian faith, there was a guy by the name of Celsus, who was an anti-Christian writer in the late 2nd century. And Celsus dismissed the resurrection for this reason. He, he said, the reason we can't trust the resurrection is it is based on the uh, hysterical fantasies of a kind of, of a hysterical woman. Someone who's just, she's so emotional, she's so caught up, you can't trust them. That's exactly what they were saying. So, if you were going to make up a story in which you were going to try to convince the world that your master, that your leader had risen from the dead, why in the world would you write that story with your first and primary witness to that event being a uh, formerly mentally mentally deranged woman? The only reason you would ever write it like that is because that's how it happened. 
because it went down like that. There's no benefit to you writing it that way if you're just trying to get people to buy in. There's, there's nothing that helps you out to write it like that. The, way you write, or the reason you write it that way is because Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, chose to make his very first witness, the very first person that he appeared to, he chose for it to be a woman. And not just a woman, but a woman that was seen to be somewhat on the outskirts of society. That's how he did it. The reason why it's told this way is because that's how it happened. And I believe this to the bottom of my heart that this is how it happened. I believe that the resurrection is um, incredibly verifiable. So much so that even if you doubt whether the Bible is true or not, you can look at the evidence and come to the conclusion that the resurrection actually took place around the year 33 AD. That's what we're going to talk about right after the break. Uh, First, we'll take just a few minutes. If you need to use the restroom and it's in there, if you need to stretch your legs, we'll get back up here in just a few minutes. All right, um, so there's this uh, commentary, this scholar who, who wrote a commentary on the book of John by the name of Gary Burge, and, and I really like a lot of his writing. It's been it's, uh, very helpful for me in understanding uh, that gospel and very uh, helpful for me in, in a lot of my prep for teaching and those kinds of things. And, and Burge says that the point of chapter 20 in John The point of chapter 20 is basically twofold. It is to instruct us about these two main ideas. One is this, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And the second is to explain the nature of what it means to be his disciple after the resurrection. Okay? Um, So those two things, and, and both of those themes I really love. And so I spent a fair amount of this week trying to debate back and forth like, which of those things do I want to talk about? Which of those things do I want to talk about? And I couldn't decide. So I'm going to talk about both of them. Uh, or I'm going to try. We'll see if we've got time. I'm going to keep an eye on the clock. Uh, and and if, if it's going to be too much, we'll, we'll cut. But um, I, want to, I want to try to hit on both of these things uh, first. And we'll spend most of our time here. I want to talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection. Why I believe the resurrection happened. Why I believe, even if you're not sure you trust the Bible yet, why I still think and believe in the resurrection. Um, this is, by the way, I mean, we've said this, I've said it already, but I'll say it again. The resurrection is the foundational teaching of Christianity. Everything else that Christianity says, everything else that Christianity believes, stands or falls with the resurrection. So if Jesus did not raise from the grave, you can take everything else and toss it out. You don't need this, okay? Uh, if he did then you've got to be honest with yourself and begin to evaluate what to do with these things. Because if Jesus rose from the grave, then it means he is who he said he was. But if he didn't, you don't need any of this. And the Bible itself says that. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, says, If Jesus did not raise from the grave, then your faith, your way of life, and our teaching is a waste of time. Stop. Like we should be, he says, we should be pitied more than anybody else for being the idiots who are trying to give our lives to this, to this myth, to this legend, if Jesus did not raise from the grave. The good news, as I said, is I think there is plenty of reason to believe it. So I want to talk to you about what a person can know, what we can believe and see about Jesus, even without the Bible. I I trust the Bible. I believe this to be the Word of God. I believe it to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, trustworthy and reliable. But even if you don't, here's what you can know about Jesus before you ever even crack this open. The first is you can know this, that Jesus of Nazareth did exist. And he had a ministry and a following in the region of Palestine around the years 30 to 33 A.D., Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing in the first century, Josephus was not a Christian, did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah, but Josephus tells us that this man named Jesus did exist, a Jesus who was the brother of a man named James the Just, and we know Jesus' brother was named James, who was the brother of, of of the man named James the Just, and he walked and he had a following in Israel around this time. So we we know that Jesus existed. Almost nobody even debates that anymore because of the historical evidence. Okay, Uh, second, we know this, that he was crucified under the governor Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, the emperor Tiberius. Um, That's interesting because uh, we know exactly when Pilate's reign was. Pilate ruled over this region of Judea as governor from 26 to 36 AD. 
So right there when we believe that Jesus was uh, alive. And we know this because not only does Josephus say it, but a Roman historian writing around the time of 100 AD, uh, Tacitus, writes that there was this man named Christus, that is Christ, Christus, who built up this following around the region of Judea, you know, some time ago, he says, and then what happened was he was crucified by the Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, and when that happened, his movement died out and just went silent for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just kind of took off again and began to explode and spread throughout the Roman Empire, so much so that Tacitus says by the years the 60s, when Nero was the emperor, that it had begun to spread all over the city of Rome. Tacitus hates Christianity. He calls it like a dangerous superstition. So he's not trying to like prop up Christianity. He's just saying this is the facts, that this Christus guy died, and then all of a sudden his movement took off. Now, that's really interesting to try and figure out because... That's not how it worked with Messiahs back then. I don't know if you know this, Jesus was not the only person to show up in the region of Jerusalem, in the region of Judea, and claim to be a Messiah back in the first century. There's actually five that we know of who appeared either a little before Jesus or after Jesus, and then there were several that happened in the centuries after that. And the pattern was always the same. Someone would come, And they would claim to be the Messiah. Sometimes they didn't claim, but their followers would claim that they were Messiah. But they would gather up this group around them that would begin to follow them and kind of pledge their commitment and their allegiance to them. And then they would build this big group up and usually try to start a revolt against Rome. And that never goes well. And so Rome would come in, wipe them out, and kill the leader. And as soon as they kill the leader, the movement dies. Why? Because the Messiah, by definition, is a winner. So if the Messiah loses to Rome, that is proof. If he dies at the hands of Rome, that is proof that he wasn't the Messiah. And so every time a Messiah would come, they'd go, they'd build up a gathering, Rome would kill them, their movement would die. Another one comes, a following starts to go after them, Rome would kill them, the movement would die. Jesus comes, a movement starts to follow him, Rome kills him, and his movement takes off. Why? That's what Tacitus can't explain. He doesn't know how that happened. Here's the third thing we can know, even if you don't trust the Bible. And that is that the reason that uh, Jesus' followers said that they continued and that they grew on is because he rose again after he died and that they saw him. Okay? Uh, Paul, in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, says, Jesus died, and on the third day he rose again, and then he appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to his brother James, and he appeared to me, and he says that he appeared to 500 others all at the same time, 500 different people there. Now, here's where a person goes, wait, 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 Drew, I don't trust the Bible. I don't, I don't care what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. doesn't matter. You don't have to trust it. Okay, You don't have to trust it yet. This is not debated wrote the book of 1 Corinthians in A.D. 54, all right? So Christian scholars scholars believe that. Everybody knows the Apostle Paul wrote these words within the same generation of Jesus. That bucks up against what a lot of people have taught, which is that the idea of Jesus' resurrection and his Messiahship was a myth that just grew over time. And nobody really believed that until like a hundred years later when there was no one left around to disprove it, right? No, no, no. 20 years afterwards, within the same generation, they were already claiming that this happened. And Paul says, 500 people saw of them. Most of them are still alive. That is, you can go ask them if you want. They were making that claim. You can say he's wrong. You can say he's lying. But you can't say that they weren't saying that. And not only that, they were also worshiping him at this time. Now, you need to understand that that's crazy and insane. Okay? That nobody does that back then. It's it's kind of hard for us to get our minds around because in America, anybody is free to make up any dumb religion or belief system and people will just kind of go along with it, right? Um, we just kind of, just random weird cults will pop up and people will believe that there's UFOs coming behind a comet and we got to drink Kool-Aid to kill ourselves to get on the UFO and like people do that kind of stuff here, right? That didn't happen back then, okay? That, that didn't happen, sorry, I should say, in, in, amongst the Jewish people. Their belief in God was so high that they would not say his name out loud. They would not write it down for fear of accidentally misspelling it and bringing dishonor to him. So you better believe if any human being would ever claim to be God, that they would have nothing to do with that. Actually, 
We had a Jewish friend here about three years ago. Some of you may, may remember. His name was Uri. He's a good friend of some people at our church, and he came over. He is not a believer. And we got to ask him a little bit about his faith and a little bit about what he believes and how he reads the Bible. And then we got to ask him some different questions. Somebody asked Uri this question while he was here. Uh, what would it take for you to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he actually is the Son of God? And you know what Uri's answer was? There is nothing you could do to convince me that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah. There is nothing that would cause me, because, he says, it's out, the phrase he kept using was, it's outside my goalposts. That is, as a Jewish person, this is outside the realm of possibility for me that some human being could show up and be the Son of God. Okay? That's how big a deal it was. Think not like America, think like Saudi Arabia today and the strictness which, with which they kept the code. So Jesus comes, Louise, and yet all of a sudden these Jewish people are actually believing that. And they're actually claiming they saw him. And then this movement begins to just grow and explode out of that region and spread over the world. And so everybody, whether they believe the Bible or not, will admit to those three things. That Jesus existed, that he died under Pontius Pilate, and that his followers were claiming he rose from the grave. That's why everybody, whether they're Christian or not, scholars who study this stuff, will tell you something crazy happened after Jesus of Nazareth died. They don't know what. They don't all agree exactly what it is, okay? Obviously, if they're not Christians, they do not believe in the resurrection. But they know that something crazy must have happened for these Jewish people to radically alter their faith in a way that they would start to worship a human being as God and claim that they saw him. And so the question is, if he didn't actually raise from the grave, if all of those people weren't telling the truth back then, then what alternative answer can you give? What other answer suits the evidence that we have for explaining this thing that took off around the year 33 A.D. back then? And so uh, people have come up with a number of different theories over the years to try and kind of explain this idea away, um, how how somehow they could have thought that they saw Jesus, but he didn't really raise from the grave. So let me just give you a handful of those. We'll, we'll go through them fast. We don't have a lot of time to go in depth. Um, one theory that's, uh, that's discussed about this is what's known as the swoon theory. And that is the idea that Jesus never actually died when he was on the cross, that he merely passed out from exhaustion and blood loss, maybe went into kind of a comatose state for a little bit. And then when he was taken into the tomb after sitting there for three days, came out of that coma and then, uh, and then came out of the tomb and walked out. And his disciples thought that he had come back to life when he had never actually died in the first place. Uh, this was a view that was first proposed in like the early 18th century, but most people don't really like give it much credence anymore, mostly because of science, okay? Uh, but like they had a, as, as they began to think through the, the idea that a person goes and uh, would actually experience crucifixion when we know what crucifixion did to a body and that they would merely pass out from that and that you could wrap them often up to Jewish burial practices up to about a hundred pounds of spices wrapped around them with cloth and that somehow in that they wouldn't suffocate that they would stay alive and then find the strength to break free of that and push out like if you if you struggle to believe the resurrection could happen you got to struggle to believe that that could happen right and, and even if he did, I always find it like, it seems just odd to me to imagine this dude who's got like nails in his hands or like holes in his hands and his feet and he's like wheezing and gasping and somehow he finds the strength to get that stone rolled away and then he just kind of claws his way into town and he's like, ta-da! And everybody's like, oh, he's the son of God, right? <laughs> like that, that never actually like fits to me in my mind, right? And so I don't, most people don't even really give much thought to this one anymore. Uh, the other idea that people have tried to come up with is go, well, we know that they, they really did believe something happened. So maybe what they saw, uh, maybe what happened is they went to the wrong tomb. And that is in the darkness of the morning. John tells us that when Mary first went out, it was dark. The other gospels will say actually that it, by the time they get there, it's light. But still, we'll, we'll give them that. In the darkness of the morning and in kind of the emotion of the moment and the confusion of the moment, somehow they went to the wrong tomb. They looked in and it was empty and they thought that, well, Jesus must have risen from the dead. And so they, they ran off and kind of told everybody. Uh, the problem with this theory is it just assumes that like nobody went back to check. 
right? Like just somebody went and looked one time and then came and said it. And everybody's like, I guess it happened. That's, that must be what it is, right? Nobody went to check. Nobody went to look at those things. Again, it also assumes that they were expecting him to raise from the grave, which they weren't expecting that. Um, but lastly, and this is a really big one, is the Jewish rulers were really, um, really striving hard in the early days of the church to put an end to this Christianity movement. They wanted to end this heresy as soon as they can. There would have been no easier way to do that than just go to the right tomb and produce the body. They go grab the body. They go bring that out. Christianity's dead right there, but they never do that. Why? I think because there wasn't a body to be brought out. Uh, another uh, theory that's kind of proposed, and this is probably the oldest theory, actually, is the stolen body theory. Actually, this one was proposed as early as, like, the first century, that it was the disciples themselves who went and stole the body as kind of an elaborate ruse to try and convince people that Jesus had risen from the grave so that they could kind of start this religion. Uh, The problem with this is that you have to believe that these 11 kind of untrained, cowardly men uh, overpowered some Roman soldiers who were standing out there in front of the tomb, and then after overpowering them, stole the body and brought it away. The other problem with this is that church history tells us that each one of these men died for what they believed, died often very painful, torturous deaths, all of them but John, who was sent away into exile and died alone on the Isle of Patmos. And so you've got to buy in your head that these guys were just so into pulling off the ultimate prank that they were willing to die for that, that they were willing to suffer. They had nothing to gain from this. They had nothing to gain or to benefit from this. They only lost out from this stuff. And so it doesn't seem to make sense that this would happen. It doesn't seem to make sense that this group of uneducated men, as Jake talked about, um, would end up selling their lives out to this cause and changing the world. It also, again, it assumes that people were expecting the Messiah to raise from the grave. And so that's why they went and pulled that off. But no one was expecting that. That wasn't kind of the understanding. Uh, Last view, and this is one that's been kind of held more recently, which is the hallucination theory. And that is that the disciples thought that they saw Jesus, but they were merely hallucinating. Uh, This is believed because it has been shown that there are uh, under cases of extreme stress and extreme grief that the right kind of person can actually hallucinate and see like a loved one that they've lost before and think that they're actually sitting with and talking with those people. So that's been like documented that that can happen. And so this has been more recently kind of one of the theories that has come up that the disciples um, were so grieved. We saw it in Mary. She was incredibly grieved. They were so grieved at this loss that they began to hallucinate and see Jesus. And that's what caused them to believe that he had risen from the grave. Uh, the, the biggest problem with this one is that hallucination is not something, uh, as far as we've got it documented, is not something that can happen to just anyone. It takes a particular kind of person, someone with a, a vivid imaginati- uh, imagination and a bit of kind of a nervous makeup to be able to hallucinate like that. The other issue with hallucination is hallucinations are like dreams in that you and I can never dream the exact same thing at the same time. Kyle and I can both be having a dream, but he's not going to see what I see because what I see is only in my brain. And that's what a hallucination is. No two people can have the exact same hallucination at the same time, let alone 500 people at the same time, which Paul claims. And one other issue is even if they had hallucinated and just seen Jesus' body, the Jewish ruling class always had the, the ability to go and just grab the real body and go, yeah, you hallucinated, but here he is. But they never did that. And this is why I believe that... Even without, I, I trust the scriptures, but even if you don't, the greatest level of evidence points to this idea and this truth that Jesus actually did raise from the grave 2,000 years ago in the year 30 A.D. or the year 33 A.D., rose back to life. I believe that, and I believe that that changes everything. Uh, we're not going to get into the second half. I don't want to go too long, so I'm just going to wrap up with this. If what Paul said is true, That if Jesus didn't raise from the grave, then all of our faith and all of our lives as Christians is a waste of time, which I believe he's right. If that's that's the case, then everything we're doing is a waste of time. But if, if that's true, then the opposite is also true. That if Jesus actually did raise from the grave, if he did come back to life, then a life that is lived apart from him, a life that refuses to follow this man, is wasting your time. 
is stepping away from the one person who promises to take a broken world and make it right again. The one person who has the ability to take all the messed up things in this world and one day restore and make it all new again. And the reason we know he has the ability to do this is because he did it with himself first. And one day, the very Jesus who brought, who came back to life and, and, and came back to life not to die again, but to live forever, one day he's going to do that again for his people. And one day he's going to do that again with this world. And if that's true, then to turn away from that and to ignore that is one of the worst things, is one of the biggest wastes of time that you could ever do, one of the biggest wastes for your life that you could ever do. You're turning away. From the greatest event in history, you're turning away from the greatest thing ever offered to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to know this. You can have confidence for the things that you believe. The resurrection happened. And not only does the Bible say it, historical evidence points to it. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, really, dude, so glad you're here. And I want you to know that like, there are reasons to believe this, even if you're not sure what to do with the Bible yet. And if you've got questions, I hope that you'll ask somebody. If there's still doubts you've got, if you're still skeptical about stuff, you're not hurting any of our feelings by coming up and asking us afterwards. You're not, uh, you're not get anyone here would love to answer your questions or talk with you about some of those things. But particularly myself, Alex, Scott, Randy, Rachel, uh, come find one of us, and we would love to talk about these things with you. Jesus really did rise from the grave, and that means that he is the king who reigns over all things. That means he is the one who is going to, who has already conquered death, and we don't have to fear it anymore. And that means that he has given us power to follow him by his Holy Spirit. And in that, we can take confidence. That is something to give your whole life to if you haven't done that already. Let me pray for us and we'll wrap up tonight. Dear Father, I can say a lot of things. I can present a lot of evidence, but it is your Spirit who confirms these things. And so I thank you for the resurrection. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here that you would confirm the reality of it and strengthen their faith tonight. And for those who are not sure and who are wondering, God, I pray that you would uh, enable them to be open to this idea. That you would open their hearts up to be honest enough with where they're at and what they think about these things. You would open them up enough to be honest with someone else and to talk to it. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey guys, Drew here with uh, a little bit of bonus content. Actually, it's sort of bonus content. It's sort of just uh, giving you what I told you I was going to give you. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the second half of our lesson that, that this chapter deals with two things. The his historicity of the resurrection, the evidence for that, and then the nature of discipleship after the resurrection? What does it look like to follow Jesus after the resurrection? Well, I talked about one of those things and didn't have time to get to the other one, so someone afterwards asked if I wouldn't mind just touching on that second thing and, and adding that to this recording. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, just another five, six minutes kind of talking about what does it look like to follow Jesus now that he is resurrected, what does discipleship look like? Uh, that was a fairly easy question to answer before his resurrection, before his death. Uh, the, the way you followed Jesus was by physically following Jesus. That was how you would be his disciple, right? You, you walk wherever he walks. You, you would speak to him and you would ask him questions and you would watch him and you would learn from him. But what does it look like now on the other side of the resurrection what does it look like to follow Jesus now? Uh, and to answer that, we go back to verse 17. Again, I, I mentioned uh, this, this question brought up. What does Jesus mean when he says in verse 17, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And, and this, is a, this is kind of an interesting little statement Jesus makes there. Don't cling to me, I have not yet ascended. Those, those two things don't even seem to fit together, those two uh, statements. Uh, but here's what I think is going on in that verse, is that he is telling her something that he's actually been promising for a while. All the way back in, I believe it's John 7, 
Jesus says, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from him. And then John puts in parentheses uh, that by this, Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit whom he had not given because he had not yet been glorified. There are those words, not yet. Jesus says, I've not yet ascended, so don't cling to me. John says the Holy Spirit hasn't come because he was not yet glorified. And so here's what I think Jesus is getting at. He's getting at this promise uh, that he's about to send his Holy Spirit. In other words, I would, I would maybe paraphrase verse 17. Mary, there's no need to cling to me because I'm making a way for you to never be without me again. Through my Spirit within you, you can know my presence, my peace, my love, day or night. So because of the resurrection and Jesus' then ability to send the Holy Spirit to us, discipleship has a new level of presence. There's never a moment when we are without Jesus. We can always follow and walk with Jesus. We can always be with Him because He is with us through His Holy Spirit. Another thing that uh, post-resurrection discipleship has is new power from that Holy Spirit. So it's not just Peter watching Jesus somewhere in Galilee and then trying to emulate it. It's now Peter or me or you reading and seeing the things of Jesus and then having not just the example of Jesus but the power of Jesus through His Spirit working in us. Uh, you will have because of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, a new kind of power to obey. Paul says in Romans 8 that this spirit, this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's how big this is. See, if you ask the average Christian, what does it mean, what does the resurrection mean for us today? I think most Christians would tell you the resurrection means that Jesus is alive. And that's true. And they might be able to say that the resurrection means that Jesus really was the Son of God. And that's true. And those are huge things. But the resurrection means a lot more than that. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is alive. It means that we are made alive too in a brand new way. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. He says, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, here's what it says, here's the reason that happened, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Discipleship after the resurrection is different because it's a new you that is following Jesus. It's not the old you that was controlled by sin. It is a new you that has that has, been, that has become a new creation in Christ, that, that you raised up to a new life through His resurrection. Something happened to you when you gave your life to Jesus that you might not have been able to see or experience in that moment, but Paul says you were being placed in Christ and the old you was dying and a new you was being raised. But I think a lot of us uh, either don't know that or we forget that this is true often. I, I think, I don't know that I forget that this is true, but I think I often, this isn't at the front of my mind, and it causes me to live the Christian life in a way that doesn't match up with reality. Uh, as though, like my sin, I think I can sometimes live as though I believe my sin still has control over me. Or I can live a lot of times as though this life is all I have and so I've got to live for the now and I've got to be as happy as I can now, get as much stuff as I can now to be fulfilled now uh, instead of believing that another resurrection means I have eternity to gain joy in Jesus and so I don't have to live for just what I see in front of me. Or, or sometimes we tend to live as though the Christian life is a joyless, stress-filled drudgery. Just I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be a good person but it's so hard and it's so frustrating and and that's not really the way the Christian life is described it can be difficult it can be sacrificial but but it's not described as drudgery and and when we start to live these ways that aren't in line with the reality of the resurrection when we start to live like our sin has control over us uh, like uh, the Christian life is not joy filled or or those kinds of things i wonder 
if, if Jesus doesn't come to us through his word and through his spirit and ask us some of those same kind of questions that he asks Mary outside the tomb, you know, those questions that are actually statements, questions like, why are you living as though you can't overcome your sin? I mean, I gave you my Holy Spirit who is always, has always been, will always be more powerful than any sin or temptation you might face. Or questions like, why are you living this fear-filled or prideful life as though you're the one who sits on the throne? As though life depends on, and your life going well all depends on you keeping your crap together and, and, and having everything figured out and, and knowing everything that's supposed to happen to you. No, Jesus says, I'm the one who sits on the throne. I ascended to heaven. I'm in control of these things. It's, it's not on you. Or, or maybe Jesus asks, why are you consumed with what people think of you as though that's where your identity and worth and value come from? I gave you identity through your death or through my death and resurrection, uh, through allowing you to be adopted into God's family. Your identity is son or daughter of the king. The truth is Jesus rose from the grave so we don't have to live the kind of lives that used to define us. We don't have to live the kind of uh, stressful, pride-filled, or fear-filled, or enslaved kind of lives that we used to live or that people around us live all the time. This is the good news of the resurrection, is that it, it didn't just make a new reality for Jesus, it's a new reality for us, and that reality is offered freely to everyone who trusts in Jesus. Guys, this is what we want for you, to be able to understand what is offered to you by Christ's death and resurrection. When he gives his Holy Spirit to you, when he gives new life to you, it means that discipleship and obedience and sanctification are possible for you, that you have the power to follow Jesus because of what he's done. It's different than it was before he died on the cross. When people were just watching him and trying to learn and trying their best to be like him, we have his power inside of us to enable us to do that. If you've got questions about that, if you're going, man, I don't know if that matches up with my life exactly. If, you've, if you're wondering about those things, talk to us. Reach out to us. We would love to help you think through some of this stuff more in depth. All right, uh, that's it for the bonus content. Love you guys, and we'll, uh, hopefully you'll hear from us soon. We'll see you soon.